Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, the polymath, the man who knows more about elections than Brad Raffensperger. How's that for a, a <laughs> trivia question in about three minutes? Um, he uh, was, of course, the uh, Fox News. Uh, what was your title there? I was Pol- the politics editor at Fox News. Politics editor at Fox News for 10 years, now a contributing editor at the Dispatch, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, um, and, uh, and an author uh, at Commentary Magazine, Chris Starwalt. Hi, Chris. Thank Welcome you for having me. Yet again. I'm so pleased to be here with you guys. We are pleased to have you, and we are particularly pleased because we want to discuss the article that you published in our June issue, uh, of which we are uh, very proud, and which you should be proud, the title of which is Republicans Stop Believing Your Own Election Myth. And it's particularly timely, of course, because this week, Joe Manchin, the uh, the new maverick, <laughs> the, the, the true maverick, uh, Democratic senator from the great state of West Virginia, the home state of Chris Steyerwalt. Amen. Um, has put a put a the dagger in the heart of the uh, hopes, wishes, dreams, and fantasies of Democratic politicians, particularly in the House, uh, of the passage of the uh, For the People Act, which is this uh, uh, omnibus piece of legislation that will effectively federalize uh, na- or nationalize uh, elections, which of course for 240 years have been run uh, place, manner, and time according to the constitution by the states. And uh, Chris's piece, your piece goes into the reasons why, um, how basically over the last 20 years, both parties have fallen prey to a series of very peculiar fantasies, paranoias, and simply factual inaccuracies relating to what happens when and if and how voters turn out at the polls. Your focus in the piece is on the Republican Party's growing and peculiar paranoia that liberalized rules on 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 getting people to vote are so damaging to Republican interests uh, that they need to be opposed at every turn. And uh, of course, we then have this standing on the shoulders of Democratic paranoias, fantasies and things beginning, I think, in 2004, but moving on particularly to Stacey Abrams in Georgia in 2018, that Democrats are trying to steal elections by having too many people who are not authorized to vote vote. And and Democrats now think that Republicans want to steal elections by making it too hard for people to vote. Let's talk about voting. Chris, what's going on here? Why is everybody Mm -hmm. so bananas on this subject? So it is true that many Republicans are concerned about voter fraud. And it is also true that voter fraud is real. And it is certainly true that the current mythology 
is rooted in fact, right? It is rooted in the fact that big city democratic machines had a long history of the election fraud. And uh, as a West Virginian, I can speak very, very directly to the personal experience of how rampant uh, voter fraud was back in the old days. <clears throat> but for Republicans, this functions sort of like questions about crime rates, no matter what happens to crime rates. And when you say, yes, crime is up a little bit, but it's still a third of what it was <clears throat> at its peak in the 1990s, when you when you tell them that, they know that it's true that crime rate is re really, really high. Um, and that's how Republicans feel about voter fraud. And I do believe that it's sincere, but they would not pursue this course of action that they're pursuing unless they also thought it would be good for them to suppress voter turnout. We hear voter suppression used as a term that it's racist or immoral or that there's something wrong with it. People try to suppress uh, the other side's voter turnout all the time. It's a huge part of it. Now, you can do it through ads. You can do it through scheduling special elections in off, off, off months to try to reduce turnout. There's a lot of things that people do to try to suppress turnout. Republicans believe that suppressed turnout, lower turnout is good for them. <clears throat> Excuse me. They believe that suppressed turnout is good for them. Consequently, they are doubly enthusiastic about legislation aimed at making it harder to vote. What we looked at, what I looked at was all of the evidence points to one thing. Higher turnout has no correlation to partisan advantage. There just isn't any. There is a mountain of scholarship on this and studying elections over the past 30 years. There's simply no correlation between more people voting and one party being advantaged. Furthermore, the voters who Republicans say they want are low propensity populistic voters brought in by Donald Trump. Those are the voters who they are say they're going to bet their future on, build their future on. Those are the people who would be more likely to be impeded by obstacles to voting. Whereas for the regular Republican base, for the traditional Republican base, they'll vote, they'll walk through a hail of bullets and crawl over broken glass to go vote because that's their civic obligation. Well, let's talk about 2004, because what you're talking about here are these local bills, particularly in Georgia and Texas, to, um, in some cases, simply to restore the status quo ante before the pandemic. Uh, Noah talks about this, you know, Harris County having 24-hour drive-through voting in order to make sure that people didn't have to touch other people or stand in line or whatever, and that some of this is just about restoring emergency, you know, ending the emergency rules uh, that that made voting, uh, but also, but also to codify yeah. some of the uh, conventions that were used in, in the 2020 pandemic to make voting easier, and to codify them into law mm -hmm. in Texas right. and, and Georgia. Both of those right. have, have right. embraced and, some of this more lax approach to voting. And I should point out that Democrats <clears throat> are the obverse. They wrongly believe that greater turnout benefits them. So what they're pushing in their national legislation, what they're doing is uh, they believe will help them because they wrongly believe that greater turnout helps them. Right. So we have one example of an election, I believe, in the last 20 years, one example of an election in which higher turnout told the story of the election. And that is 2004, because George W. Bush, having won, having lost the po popular vote by 500,000 votes or something like that in 2000, uh, gained 20, got 22% more votes 
in 2004 than he did in 2000 and won one extra state, I believe, right? I mean, he ended up, they ended up winning 271 to 269, right? In two, in 2000. Yeah. And, and they was, got 286. Iowa was a trade out, I think. And they got 286 electoral votes in, in, in 2004. So nationally, there is one election that, that tells this very specific story that basically the Democrats remain on par and it was the Republicans who did better, like had higher turnout and that turned the tide. And this then created a foundational voter fraud theory that is eerily similar to the one that we're hearing from Republicans now, which is the Koch brothers somehow in conjunction with Diebold voting systems engineered changes in voting machines in Ohio that ended up winning the election for Bush. John Kerry uh, even entertained it. He even said that he was curious to find out right. what might have been go going on in Ohio with these right. Diebold voting machines. Right. So flash forward to 2020, uh, November 2020, what do we have? We have Smartmatic and Dominion, and they are playing games with the voting machines, with electronic counting on the orders of either Argentine communists or Colombian communists or uh, Venezuelan communists. I can't remember which communists are controlling our voting machines. The point I'm trying to make here is that these theories or these, these ideas are weirdly echoey, right? It was uh, Stacey Abrams in 2018 said, they stole the election from me through voter suppression. And in 2020, Donald Trump is saying, they stole the election from me in the Fulton County arena by turning off the lights or having a power failure and then stuffing the ballot boxes or whatever it is, whatever it is he's saying, that it doesn't really matter what the modality is. The clear thing is that people are grasping onto voter fraud, voter suppression theories as an excuse for why they lose the elections. They didn't really, yeah. It's more than an excuse for why they lose elections, though. It's a moral claim they're making about democracy. And I think that's the difference between John Kerry being like Diebold curious back then and the claims that you're seeing on both sides now. Each, and I will say, I, I, I put a little more blame on the Democrats for this cycle of the moralizing, although I think Republicans will certainly have and in, in the future take their turn. But this idea that it's not just that they're trying to game the system or trying to exploit weaknesses in the system, they really don't believe in the system. And so that's why you hear the democracy dies in darkness rhetoric so much. And that is, is much more pernicious in terms of how we have faith and how the process works going forward in a way that I think is far different from even the, the W election years. It, it's also um, interesting uh, right now because um, given that the Republican party has been captured to the degree it has by a uh, kind of populism um, without the uh, fraud claims, um, they would have a hard time saying, we don't want people involved in politics, wouldn't they? Because um, the, 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 the sort of whole point is, is to um, speak for the masses, right? But, but if you say, well, this is, this is um, being manipulated by the elite, this, this process, then, then you can um, crack down. Well, but <clears throat> I, would, I would just say <clears throat> populism, especially on the right, is not about majoritarianism. 
Chris, by the way, has written an entire book on populism. We should say you should sell your book. It's called Every Man a King. It's Every a Man delight. A King. It's, it, is a it smells like cinnamon when you open it up. It will change your life. Um, the the populism, especially on the right side, which tends to be cultural populism rather than economic po uh, populism, though the two, uh, national socialism is a thing, uh, the two sometimes get next to each other. Um, and we're seeing that with Republicans more and more with this common good capitalism and all this other stuff. But populism is that you are getting screwed over that other people are screwing you over and that your block, your group is being unfairly disadvantaged. Republicans believe that they are the minority, right? They do understand and believe that they're the minority, but they also think that Democrats are lazy and don't vote and that they're, they're stealing the elections from them because they can't get their lazy, welfare, enrolled, terrible voters to go to the polls. And that that is one of the big problems is how do you, you know, once you, the reason Republicans can't get better, and John, you participated in your soon to be released episode of my hangover podcast, uh, which will delight the nation in two weeks. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the problem for Republicans is how do you analyze what went wrong if you can't get people to admit that you even lost, right? You can't do a postmortem if people won't say that they lost and if that's where Republicans are stuck. Well, that's interesting because, of course, the Democrats, one of the stories of the last week is the Democrats who won, who won, right? They won, uh, Biden won by, by 7 million votes um, and 4.5%, and Democrats held on to the House and now are, are the majority, uh, not really the majority of the Senate, but, you know, sort of Senate swung back. They won. They've done an autopsy. They've done an autopsy because they thought they were going to win a lot bigger and they didn't win a lot bigger and they've at least you know taken a hard look at why they didn't win bigger was it a was it a the anomaly of of of, of bad poll did polls tell the tale because republicans don't talk to pollsters or republican voters don't or did issues do them in and you know you got to give them credit i i got to say as a party and a serious a party with seriousness of purpose that they did this because of course they have a triumphalist wing like everybody else does. That's why they're trying to pass $6 trillion worth of legislation uh, and being imprudent about it, I think. Uh, but, but they're doing it. And of course, Republicans are now awash in this problem that a third of Republicans, according to the latest poll, believe not only do half of Republicans say in polls that they think the election was stolen, but a third believe Trump will be reinstated in August. That's no. the latest. Who yeah. said that? What poll? What morning consult hot garbage poll was that? It was a. It is a poll. I don't remember it where it's poll. from. I saw it this from morning. The, an online poll from the Nation. No, okay, what is let's this? Let's just poll? Let, okay. I, I'll some look of it them up. do. I'm I'll sure some up. of them do. I'm I'll sure look some it of up. them do. Okay. Well, you guys talk. But here, here's what I would just say. There is a. There is a. A, a decades long. All right, let's talk Turkey behind it. Let's close the door and take out our cigars and be honest, right? Okay. Lee Atwater, the famous you know, Machiavellian genius of the party, it was Lee Atwater who said, the way you win elections is to depress, not suppress, depress the vote of the other guy. Do what you can to make sure that his voters don't come out by making people feel crummy about the possibility that they actually will have to stand online half hour and cast this vote. And he kind of was the god of negative campaigning 
Of course, the ultimate negative campaigning triumph in this regard was in 2000 with the George W. Bush drunk driving in 1976 uh, arrest in Maine that, you know, according to some numbers, right? What was it? Uh, three million votes, cost him three million votes, something like that. And therefore, obviously, the elect, you know, nearly costing the election. Um, but when you have a party that says to itself behind rooms and politicians hear this, look, you got to you go around, talk about your issues and get your base riled up and all that. But really the key here, look, let's be let's be honest. Let's be let's be serious and tough and cynical. You got to get the other guy not to turn out. That's how you're going to win. That's how you're going to win. And then when you get these meetings of Republicans in Georgia and Arizona and Texas and other places, and someone's in the room who isn't with them, and they're like, yeah, we got to do something to make sure those Democrats don't come out and vote. It's based on this 30-year idea of Lee Atwater's that is problematic because we know we have all sorts of evidence that it just isn't true that people are more, you know, that that depressing turn, you know, need to have a real thing to depress turnout, not just sort of like, eh, you know. Well, I think you, I, I think you have Sunday. to, I think you have to delineate <clears throat> between messaging and structural changes. So a great example on what you're talking about is Ohio, two thousand four, by pushing a gay mar an anti-gay marriage constitutional amendment in Ohio, the Bush campaign did two things beneficially. They suppressed carry turnout by, by depressed or suppressed. Uh, I don't think of them as particularly different things. Uh, <clears throat> uh, reduced the enthusiasm for John Kerry by reminding uh, religious voters, particularly African-American voters about him, and at the same time drove evangelicals to the polls who might otherwise have had some reservations or reasons not to vote for Bush. That is an issue set that worked for Republicans in both ways by uh, exciting their base and suppressing support for Kerry. That's different than we're not gonna let you do early voting on Sunday. We're gonna create impediments to voting because what happens when you do that, and there's a lot of scholarship on this too, and from the, 20, the, from the 2020 election, we have the tickets in now, we know what happened. Basically no one who wanted to vote, no high propensity voter didn't vote because of obstacles created by any of this stuff. This is a, it's a, it's a canard. The Democrats are totally full of it when they paint a picture that there are people who are just dying to vote, but they can't get in there to do it. Long lines are a problem. That's a real thing. And when state legislators, when Republican state officials starve resources to urban precincts, this is, uh, that's no fair. But the truth is, the people who you're affecting when you change these rules are marginally attached, low propensity voters who don't vote in biennial elect, don't vote in midterms, they don't vote in specials, they don't usually vote in primaries. These are the, this is the, and I, I mean this with love, this is the bottom of the barrel. This is the scraping out the bottom of the barrel of low propensity voters. And Republicans by targeting them are targeting just as many of their own voters, if not more, according to some studies, if not more than they are hurting Democrats. One, one other question then. So one of the things that happens when people come up with clever ways of turning out the vote is that they have real success in one election, 
Mm-hmm. They pull they pull a trick, right? Uh, vote harvesting in California in 2018 being the single most important example of this. California changed its rules so that a third party could take your vote and bring it to a polling place. And uh, they went bananas. Republicans, uh, Republican, Republican California, California's Republican Party is not a good party and not a particularly competent party. And they got their hats handed to them because Democrats are going around getting all these votes and bringing them to polling places and Republicans didn't. And they just went hog wild. 2020, it didn't work anymore. It stopped working because they you, you can only do it once. You can only pull somebody's pants down once and then they'll get a belt and they'll do the same <laughs> thing that you did, right? Yes, so I like that. With, okay, so with all of this, including 24-hour voting and drive-by this and do this and all that, any technical advantage that Democrats may have secured in 2020 is matchable by Republicans using the same techniques. They don't work. They don't work anymore unless you believe, as you say, Republicans believe. Actually, the truth is, we're not as popular. People don't like us. And if we let them, if we let this go, we're toast. And that I think is the key to understanding your piece, which is that isn't true, right? Like that is the genuine Republican internal crisis of the Republican party's mistake here is the belief that all things being equal, it's the end of the Republican party. I I think you have to think of three groups of voters here. You have group A, which it would be your hardcore. Uh, These are high propensity voters. These are midterm voters. The midterm electorate is more Republican than the quadrennial presidential year electorate. And it is true that a given Republican is a higher propensity voter than a given Democrat. Now that's shifting and will continue to shift as Republicans become the party of uh, poor whites, right? As that is going on, because nothing is as closely correlated to voter propensity than income and education. The richer and better educated you are, the more likely you are to be a high propensity voter and the same in reverse. So you take your uh, midterm election and you get a more Republican electorate. Then you go to your quadrennial election and the Democrats, those slightly lower propensity voters, do come in, right? When you expand the electorate by a by a you know, by a third or more, when you expand the size of the electorate, you are bringing in more Democrats and the quadrennial electorate nationally is more democratic. What we're talking about here, those people are not affected when you change, whether you drop off on Sunday or don't drop off on Sunday or this, that, or the other thing. We're talking about the last bit, which are the people who vote in high turnout presidential elections, but not usually. So we're talking about somebody, we had the highest turnout in 2020 of any election in the modern era, period. You have to go back to the 60s. uh, And if you go back to the 60s, we're talking about, practically speaking, not full enfranchisement. uh, And we're also talking about women not in the workforce and a lot of other cultural changes since then. The highest turnout ever. So you get that extra little bit and that extra little bit, the people who are most likely to be affected by limitations on voting are also uh, maybe even Republican leaning. So these rules are counterproductive for Republicans. So 2022 is an, is, is, is an interesting test case of this, because of course, 
Democrats got uh, 62 million votes in aggregate nationally in 2018 versus 53 million for Republicans. The high that really was the highest midterm turnout ever, any in any way and in, in any percentage ever, and was an enormous sign that 2020 was going to happen. That they were able to turn out. 92% of the vote that they got in, in, in 2016. So 2022 comes around, they got a five seat majority in the house and uh, what's gonna happen there? Cause we're saying, you're saying the Republican party is moving into being a working class populist party, but we also got the CARES Act and the infrastructure stuff and all this spending and and a lot of, of trigger Republican suburban issues, including crime and social disorder, uh, that might incline as an issue set to be very harmful to Democrats and might be resetting the table a little bit where you could have Republican party still is the party of the low propensity white working class voter who probably isn't gonna turn out very much in 2022. But may yet again, at least in the midterm context, become a more Republican electorate than it was in, in 2018, a little well, more like 2020. Noah, in between vapes, has written about uh, how basically half of the electorate is always the suburbs, right? We talk a lot of stuff, a lot of jibber jabber about, well, it was the white working class, it was uh, NASCAR dad, soccer moms, it was uh, Hispanic voters, it was whatever. But basically, it's, it's, uh, the, the suburbs are like the Catholic vote. You say, well, so-and-so is doing better with Catholics or so-and-so is doing better with suburbs. This is just another way of saying that if you win the majority of votes, you win elections. And <laughs> half, of, half of voters, 45 to 50% of voters are, are suburban. And that's just where the largest trove of votes are. And it also happens that these are voters who are now increasingly not attached to either side. Republicans should expect to win a decisive midterm victory. Everything tells us that that is so, right? Uh, the, the average loss of seats for the party in power in the president's first midterm since Ronald Reagan is 22 seats. Uh, Republicans have no midterm correlation on the Senate, but Democrats sure do. Every president, every Democratic president since Lyndon Johnson has lost Senate seats in their first midterm. It is the reality of their existence because of how the our our wonderful uh, small R Republican system works. That's just how it is for them. So everything in history and everything even in demography says that Biden should be the Democrats should be teed up for a shellacking. On the other hand if Republicans go through their 2022 primary like a bunch of morons and have a, and are talking about, can you imagine the stupidity of a party that's gonna talk about how do we prevent people from voting so they don't steal the election again, rolling into a midterm where that what they really wanna say is, come vote, please, 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 please come vote. We really like all of this stuff. So, you know, Republicans could, just as they did in the Georgia runoffs, they could uh, stupid themselves into uh, blowing a historically easy layup shot. So the important point to take away here is that there is no historical data, political science data, or, or any real data that suggests that um, efforts to restrict voting 
The Turnout Myth. The book is Chris called is The Turnout Myth by my turnout myth. by my friend Darren Shaw at the University of Texas. It is it will it will it will make the case persuasively. Right, and and so basically, uh, there the, the data are not there to suggest that this Republican effort state at state level that isn't just about cleaning up and fixing things or even uh, enshrining things, as Noah said, um, about the peculiarities of 2020 uh, and making sure that we return to a, a, a stabler uh, approach to, to elections, uh, that those benefit Democrats uniquely and that just, Republicans just, have bought, go ahead. Just to make two, two brief points. First, a, a, a slight correction. I make points in between vaping and during vaping. Fair, 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 fair. hanging out of my mouth like Michelle Hellenbach while I'm multitasking. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, secondly, though, I do see some signs that Republicans seem inclined to present themselves as just a generic opposition, not necessarily mm -hmm. a governing vehicle, and therefore you know, capture the voters who are disinclined to reward Democrats for their, the job that they've done over the course of two years of unified government. We had a, a primary, Republican primary in my home state yesterday, um, which pit a sort of generic Republican, a known figure in the state against two people who were competing to be the most Trumpy, the most um, populist, right-wing populist they possibly could, and, and, and presenting themselves as heirs to Donald Trump. Extraordinarily low turnout election. I think it was less than 400,000 people turned out. Um, but nevertheless, the generic candidate won, and won handily. And so even though my governor is on pace to become the first Democrat re-elected to the, to, the, to the governorship since Brendan Byrne in 1977, He's nevertheless going to face a challenge that is is probably going to be at least somewhat competitive and present a model to their GOP moving forward that they don't necessarily have to and you know present themselves to a Republican electorate as being the heirs to Donald Trump and Trumpism. Also, um, Chris, I don't know if you've had a chance to sort of look through or sort through what happened in the Virginia primaries um, last night, but from what little I can gather. Um, at least just to make things more complicated for Republicans, um, uh, the Democrats there in a state that is, you know, I think become reliably red having been purple, at least in the last eight years, uh, that they moderated them, so that, that, that facing the possibility of moving in the sort of more extreme, excuse me, the more extreme democratic woke direction that they pulled back <clears throat> and sort of went with more moderate rather than more liberal candidates, or at least in this context in the Democratic Party. I don't know that it's, it, it is a very small turnout election uh, of the registered voters in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, something like, and I'm just doing it back in the envelope here. So something like, it's it's higher turnout than I expected. I thought they'd only be about 350,000 votes. They got 486,000 uh, people turned out, but you're still talking about 6%. You're talking about 7% turnout uh, out of, now the Re Republicans didn't have uh, a statewide primary. They had local primaries. They didn't have a statewide primary because they did a, lash up between a convention and an election Drive with through. Yeah. rank choice voting and whatever. They still got their best candidate, though. Uh, mm -hmm. The Republicans still got their best candidate in Virginia. And they did the same thing uh, that Noah described in New Jersey, which is they had two goofballs running to see who could be the goofiest, right? Uh, it was Pete Snyder 
an Amanda Chase were uh, running around seeing who could out Trumpo the other one. And then you had um, Glenn Youngkin uh, from uh, 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 our uh, rich guy town uh, that he, this, this mega, this mega rich dude um, came in and, and bought a lot of Trumpy kind of uh, staff and advertising, but maintained a pretty normal message and is their best candidate for the general election. What, Democrats did with Joe Biden is what they did with Terry McAuliffe, uh, the Democrats in Virginia did for Terry McAuliffe. There were three African-American candidates, including Justin Fairfax, uh, I think the, the, the term of art was credibly accused of sex crimes. Um, <clears throat> that So that and two African-American women, one former legislator, one current, uh, put together, I don't even think they beat and I'll have to look, but I wouldn't, I'll put it this way. I would not be surprised to find out that Terry McAuliffe, who got like 65% of the vote overall, didn't beat the three of them put together with African-American voters in Virginia. Justin Fairfax, I believe, uh, if, if, I, if I saw the numbers correctly, uh, for a sitting politician, may have gotten the fewest votes in the history of, you know, he, he should in 17,000 votes, a guy who's been elected statewide got 17,000 votes in his own primary. And had the, this credible accusation not occurred and had and had his, uh, had the governor uh, to whom he is Lieutenant Governor, uh, you know, not been caught in a, you know, in blackface. Or um, a Klansman hood. I, Klansman I, my money's way, on the yes. hood, not okay. the blackface, One but whatever. Fair yeah. enough. I mean, Justin Fairfax should have been the candidate should actually have been the Democrat. Under other circumstances, I think everybody presumed two and a half years ago, he would be the next governor of Virginia and he got like 3% of the vote or something like that. So not uh, 10 that's years a, ago around this time, we were staring down the barrel of two Republican victories in these states, indicative of a wave that was going to crest in 2010. And we don't see that now. Nope. We don't see anything like that now. No, well, that's true. And uh, But I mean, uh, there were the surprise victories of of 2009 uh, across the country. By the way, no, you had, they weren't you had all that Christ, surprising. Christie, no. Christie uh, McDonald, um, uh, and a couple of specials. Um, they were they were indicative of something. Right now, we don't really see see that. But of course, what Republicans need in 2022 nationally, at least isn't that much they, they, <laughs> really they, it isn't that much they, if they win six seats if, they right, take if, the house back if 22 is the standard they just need six and six yeah. is not a lot and but, one senate and one senate seat but if we look at the new mexico special election that they just had to replace deb halland mm -hmm. uh in what used to be a pretty republican district it's got some of the city of Albuquerque, but then reaches out into and, and takes a, a very suburban chunk. Democrats outperformed Biden in that special election out there. It's going to be very hard for Democrats to maintain this level of voter engagement. And they're going to get into divisions pretty soon because you can't just paper it over with shooting money out of a, a geyser constantly uh, to cover up the, the fractures within the Democratic Party. But right now, Democrats are doing everything they need to do to try to beat the midterm curse uh, and Republicans are doing some of the things they need to do, but still have a ways to go. And you know what Republicans and Democrats alike need to do if they're gonna 
be serious and resolute about the work they do and do it successfully. They need to sit in an X chair, Chris. <laughs> <clears throat> they need to sit in an X chair, that luxury supercar of office chairs, because if you're not in an X chair, the one you got needs to go. <clears throat> what is X chair's secret? It's not only the patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back, but that new XHMT technology that delivers heat and massage therapy right to your core at your desk, increasing blood flow, muscle recovery, energy, all perks that make working from home or office a joy. And it has those four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when you're sore. Instead of your old uncomfortable office chair, look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it. And it's now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. So I want to just move on from this. Uh, one thing I did, I do feel the need to mention, because I've talked about this before in the podcast, I'm just going to tell you this quickly. Uh, New York Mayor's, New York Mayor's Race uh, primary in two weeks. Um, and last night, uh, stories dropped both in New York Magazine and in Politico suggesting that the current front runner, not that anybody really knows who the front runner is, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, former police officer, head of uh, 100 black men uh, in law enforcement who care, um, and, a, and a kind of eccentric figure in New York politics, uh, to say the least. Um, Brooklyn Borough President may actually live in New Jersey. Ooh may live in New Jersey. Uh, he apparently lives in New Jersey. He owns property in Brooklyn, but it's all rented out to other people. And he apparently also is part owner of a condo in Fort Lee, and that may be where he is living. And he dropped out of a debate tomorrow night um, to uh, that uh, on, on, on Channel 2 New York, um, which is never a good sign if you can't, do a debate two weeks before the election that is a two-point race um, because you're afraid of answering questions about whether or not you live in the city that you're running for mayor of. Uh, if, in fact, this really does deepen as a story, uh, we're talking about that George W. Bush uh, drunk driving charge, this is a fantastic late hit. This is a textbook late hit. It, no, no one just found out about this. People have had it in their back pocket. Early voting begins Saturday. It was Tuesday that it came out. Um, so far, it isn't really bubbling around in the New York City press. It's hard for people to write about this stuff in part because Eric Adams is African-American. But I don't know. That's pretty good. That's some pretty good politicking going on there. Make Has thrown the cards up in the air for the race uh, in a way that theoretically would benefit Andrew Yang, uh, who is either neck and neck or just slightly behind Eric Adams, although nobody knows because it's ranked choice voting. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys that just because I've talked about this race and it is so such a defiantly peculiar race. There is a great piece on Real Clear Investigations this morning by Richard Bernstein, former longtime correspondent of the New York Times, was the China bureau chief, many other things, a very good writer, a very impressive guy about uh, the celerity and the absolute sort of mad dash 
toward um, an ending of colorblindness as the American standard, particularly not only at universities, which we know about and in schools, but also in corporations and, and all of that. And, and I commend it to everybody at Real, it's at Real Clear Investigations. Um, it's, uh, it will not, no individual detail may be, may be unknown to you or, and, and, and it may not, none of it may surprise you or strike you as new, but in aggregate, it is a powerful argument that, that with unbelievable speed, we have moved from <clears throat> a society that is dedicated to the notion that true fairness involves colorblindness to a society that believes that color consciousness and race consciousness is the most important way to achieve a just society and acting on that consciousness. So I wanted to propose one quick thing and ask you guys to, uh, to respond to it, which is that, so all societies privilege some things over other things, you know, societies uh, that engage in ancestor worship, for example, or are sort of organized on the idea that the most important people are the oldest and they're the wisest and all of that. Um, so they privilege the old over the young, right? Or, or uh, some societies privilege, uh, you know, we privilege families over single people in our tax code. Uh, we've increasingly decided to privilege safety over risk, both in, in the economy and in the way we regulate the economy and all of that. Uh, it's important to us to have national parkland, so we privilege that, uh, whereas a different America with a different set of values might have might look at parkland and say, this is all empty, there should be buildings on it, all of that, right? So there are things, all societies privilege some things over other things. So it's a choice that has been made in American society effectively over time to make our ideal colorblindness and race blindness and to deal with the individual one-on-one -on -one from the inside out as Glenn Lowry's book in the 1990s put it. And it appears that that choice is being changed and that we are moving almost explicitly to a society in which Every profession, including professions that would seem to be colorblind simply by virtue of what they are, like the study of mathematics or stuff like that. Now, what is more important is to make sure that there is just an equitable representation by race and by gender and by whatever in these professions, including, as I say, professor, you know, being a professor of mathematics, something like that. So colorblindness is an ideal. It's not it's nothing that's been you know, achieved and may never be achieved. But equity is an ideal also. It will never be achieved. We, there will not, never be equity in the world because some people are abler than others in many different ways. Like I, I will not be a professional athlete, uh, you know. Depends uh, on the sport. Pick a sport. You don't know. Curling. Steam shooting. Bowling. <laughs> But old, old time, old time bowling. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you clearly passed the Turing test here. What you're describing is, is, in the terms you're describing it, are far too charitable, vastly too charitable. What you're describing is a is a Harrison Bergeron esque future in which a handicapper general insists that because you have the capacity for achievement, you must be fettered. That you cannot achieve that which is your you, that you that your merit allows you to achieve because others cannot, and so therefore we are these people these equity advocates have adopted a view that suggests 
that maybe because certain people by virtue of their accidents of their birth are incapable of certain achievements, no one should be allowed access to those achievements. Well, this is this is the interesting debate actually that's going on right now, right? Just like there was always a tension between the ideal of colorblindness and the ideal of diversity, which was another thing everybody paid obeisance to, you know, particularly corporate America. There's this weird tension now about equity and, and structural racism and the questions about what it means for achievement, particularly in schools. And there are different approaches right now. Now there was a there was California, for example, has tried a couple different things they, they, in this what they call a detracking movement. They either say honors classes for everybody, so we're not going to you know keep some kids in different classes or call them honors classes, so everyone is an honor student. But then there's the other thing that they're also trying, which is eliminating the excellence in mathematics classes, the ones that kids had to kind of have the grades and the teacher recommendation to go into which does is what you're talking about, Noah, which is cutting off excellence in order to claim that everyone is brought up. But I think the important context here, particularly with schools, because this is happening in a lot of school districts, some here in DC and in, in Thomas Jefferson High School in, in Virginia has had a big debate over this. I think it's important to note that a lot of this is coming from ideologues who think it's an easier Band-Aid fix to claim, oh, honors for everybody, detracking, everybody's equal, than it is for them to deal with what is in fact the structural problem here, which is that some families are not at the very beginning of their kids' educational lives committing the resources and the time and the devotion to their kids' education that others are. And that is an unequal thing. It's a happenstance, it's a circumstance of birth. Trying to fix it at the middle school and high school level by eliminating honors classes for the kids who are achieving is not the way to fix that problem, but it's a very easy ideological narrative that you can say, look what I did to fix it. Again, racism. even this is too charitable for me. I mean, we're using a lot of big words to describe racial prejudice, um, and particularly when it comes to arithmetic, the, t the study of math, where people are now endorsing the, the, the insulting notion, literally, that two plus two may equal five in part because that might be someone else's experience. You don't know, you can't say what's right or wrong. And if that's their experience, man, you just got to go with it. That is bigotry. Um, I, but I also want to say it, it's it's even worse than Christine describes for another reason, which is that um, if, if the solution is to um, lower standards, then what you're doing is guaranteeing, ensuring that whatever um, problems there are in the household and whatever else will never be overcome because now you never need to because because we, we've eliminated um, this tier as a goal forever. Okay, well, I, 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 oh, go ahead, Chris. Well, I mean, I think this is a lot more about enforcing a new kind of elitism than eliminating elitism as a tier. I think this is a bunch of uh, garbage that is the new, these are the new semiotics of the new elite uh, and it is how new elites are trained to talk. This is what we hear from reporters at the New York Times. This is what we hear from people in elite institutions. If you if you talk, if you uh, I constantly hearken back to uh, the uh, great piece by Michael Powell on Smith College uh, and the meltdown there over the uh, young woman who claimed that she was racially profiled because a janitor called uh, security on her for being in the wrong building and destroyed the lives of all these working poor people, including immigrants. The I think a lot of this stuff is just the new jargon of the new elite that they know that this is how you're supposed to talk and that they're trained to talk in this way. I don't think they want a really egalitarian society. They just want to demonstrate their membership in this snooty, this new snooty patootie way to live. Okay, so I agree with everything you have all said. As will not, it will not surprise you. I'm suggesting 
that the, the risk and the threat that we are talking about here is philosophically far broader than any of you is, 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 is quite fathoming. By, by which I mean, Noah, you say this is bigotry. It is only bigotry if by bigotry you are referring to the notion that it is an incredible injustice to do wrong or to do harm to an individual person, a kid who, sh who should be able to excel, but is not allowed to by the Harrison-Bergeron rules that you are laying out, right? <clears throat> Societies can change that calculus. It is bigotry, but they can say it is more important that we look at this from a class or you know group standard. <coughs> I'm sorry, a macro standard than a micro standard. America looks at it, we are a nation created uh, with the ideal of individual liberty and therefore we have a macro standard, micro standard, but that's unjust, it's unjust. You can do that. It's a total redefinition of what it means to be an American but doesn't it have to be a collective decision? Yes, and it is not. For two, two points briefly, one that I think you, you wanna to get to. The first is that as, uh, as the pandemic recedes and people are emerging from their hiding holes, um, these school board meetings where public, public input is, is requested are exploding. People are lining up outside the door half a block long. It's story after story in local municipalities about people raging against an elite consensus that imposed critical race theory on the curriculum. And it is very similar to a conservative predilection um, that really was expressed high-pitched outrage over Dr. Seuss's estate's decision to discontinue the publication of six particular books. That happened and between Loudoun County, uh, moving away from this, read across America Day, in to Virginia, Joe Biden right. endorsing this, to the estate doing this, I happened over the course of a week because it didn't want any public input. They weren't confident enough in their decision. A, a consensus that was reached years ago, the school library administration had been publishing pieces in their in you know their blogs about how problematic these books were for years. A consensus was reached a long time ago and it had to happen really quickly because to, to, to solicit public input about this thing would be to jeopardize a conclusion they had reached a long time ago for your own good, which you don't clearly understand. Well, and the, to, to not allow public input um, also prevents them from having to confront the actual statistical facts. So at Thomas Jefferson High School in, in Virginia, for example, parents are suing about the new admissions requirements that are they claim are quote unquote holistic. But basically what it's meant to do and what it's clearly targeting are the uh, higher percentage of Asian American students at Thomas Jefferson High School and the very low number of Hispanic and black students. So what you, but if you look at it like that, it's much easier to say structural racism and then count Asians, not as a minority, which right. they are, but they're very high achieving minority. They become white adjacent. They're counted as white because they're achieving. So having the public forum where you have immigrant Asian parents standing in front of a microphone saying, 
my kid spends all day Saturday studying for tests because this is the way our, our family sees a path forward in this country. They don't want to answer those people because it doesn't suit a narrative where the elite can easily say, well, we're doing this for all the other kids, but not this minority. And it's similar to the Harvard lawsuit that Asian American students have, have filed. But it's, it's a problem. They don't want to deal with it publicly. No, it's absolutely right. I mean, one thing I wanted to ask, Chris, let me let me ask you, because, uh, you know, I, I myself, autobiographically, Right, I'm a classic person of privilege. I'm the child of upper middle class, uh, you know, highly educated people who did thought work. Um, but my my father was the son of a milkman. My mother was the daughter of a uh, a, a, a guy raised uh, by a, a single mother whose husband beat her, and she fled him from him to. America and raised him alone in a ghetto. Like, so I'm not that removed, though, of course, I seem very much removed uh, uh, in these positions. And one of the things that I sort of know about in, 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 in their life histories is, of course, that the very act of privileging, let's say, education, for example, of being the sort of person who says, my child has to do well in school. This is a key core value for me and my household will be organized around it, is a cultural choice that many people don't make. I mean, just for the sake of argument, you can say that in West Texas, it is way more important to get on the football team than to be on the dean's list or the honor roll. Like, and that is not, I, this is not a judgment that I am passing. This is a very big country. There are a lot of cultural differences. People, people who are themselves, for whom education is not a core value, are not bad or wrong. They are maybe doing harm to you know their kids should do as well as they possibly can. But you know, um, to say that you, you take apart an entire school system in order to make sure that people who come from backgrounds or come from households or stuff like that where this is not the thing that is most important to them uh, in order to make them elevate them as opposed to the people for whom it is the most important thing. That's weird. And it's a weird misunderstanding of, of sort of like how we're supposed to look at our fellow citizens, I think. Well, we're not you, supposed to say it's better to be to, it's better to go to Harvard than not to go to Harvard, but that's effectively what this entire doctrine is about. Yes, and there is a, a thing here about um, tr the problem with equality of outcomes is that we may seek different outcomes for ourselves in a free society. We may prioritize things differently, rightly, right? We may rightly prioritize things differently. Um, and talking about high school football, you're, you're looking at a, at a uh, two-time statewide West Virginia speech and forensics champion. Uh, now, uh, would that have been harder in New York? Probably, probably, but I'll take it as, as a old editor of oh, mine said. Oh, Chris, for God's sake, if you were in my speech, and I don't care, you could be in... You could be in ancient Athens, you would win the speech and as, debate award. As a, as a old editor of mine said, after I'd won a bunch of awards at the West Virginia Press Association, I was coming back to the table. He said, boss, now remember, it ain't that you're that good. It's that the rest of them are that bad. Um, the We've been talking a lot about Greenwood uh, and the, the, the white race riot in Oklahoma, the anniversary of the white race uh, riot in Oklahoma uh, that destroyed Black Wall Street. 
And the story as it is told is uh, good insofar as it goes about pointing out how white resentment at African-American success in Oklahoma 100 years ago caused this vicious attack. Correct. Lost in the discussion, though, was how you got a Greenwood district. How did you get Black Wall Street? And the way that you got Black Wall Street was Booker T. Washington had one adherence in the African-American community across this country and in burgeoning middle-class places, places of enlightenment and learning in Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Harlem, Kansas City, Oklahoma, so far-flung places, right, where a burgeoning Black middle class was based on the Booker T. Washington's idea, which is we have to model other successful minority groups like Jews. Now we can say Mormons, we can say uh, Lebanese. We got to stick together and we got to be, we got to make ourselves economically indispensable to the community. And we've got to get rich and we've got to build our own power base so that we can buy our way into the American system. It works. And it has worked for other groups. And Booker T. Washington was saying that. He, he, thanks to the help from a lot of paternalistic white people, lost the debate inside the African-American intelligentsia to W.E.B. Du Bois, who won the election to be president of the NAACP and embraced a different concept, which is we must make white people make us equal. We must demand equality from whites. And we must shame whites into giving us this equality up front. The tragedy of all of that we talk about, the tragedy of the uh, the very well-written piece uh, that, that you shared with us and that we're talking about here, the tragedy that's outlined in here is no one can make another person equal. I cannot grant and bestow equality on another. Uh, that Fliberty gibbet at the National Geographic magazine who signed her uh, uh, plea for new subscribers, race card, colon, white, privileged, with lots to learn. Can you imagine an arrogance more effulgent, more ridiculous than a white lady saying like, oh, I'm so, I know I'm so privileged, but I'm just trying to get around it. I'm just trying to learn about how much better I am than you so that I can offer you a hand up. All of this malarkey, is part of the same theme, which is fetishizing whiteness, fetishizing the, the, the privileges of whiteness, instead of talking about in practical terms, how do you help disadvantaged minority groups build cultural cohesion? How do you help them uh, learn to be better at what they're doing? And you know, I, I'm always waiting for Booker T. Washington to have his moment. And for a time in the 90s and early in the aughts, I thought maybe it was gonna happen. We were seeing uh, the the standards on affirmative action decline. We were starting to see that decline. And now we're, we find ourselves back in a hyper-dominant uh, Dubois, Dubois system. Okay, it's, oh, Abe, go ahead. Well, I just have to say, and this is purely impressionistic. Um, it strikes me that the model that says um, we need other people to make us equal, um, to me, that is more of a stubborn fixture among white liberals than oh, than, yeah. than any other group. To me, that is the that is the part of the whole woke movement that is so fixated on this that is made that is that has successfully institutionalized it. Um, I, I don't. I think you know. Just this is as I say. It's purely 
impressionistic when I when I go online and when I when I when I hear from people, that is not what um, I hear a whole lot of black people saying. Um, and I think the reason white people uh, uh, like that because it, it it as you as you point out with the woman from the uh, the National Geographic's campaign, um, it conserves their sense of being yep. the 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 power. Uh, the, the the person in, in position of power while making them while advertising how good they are and how and how kind they are. Isn't a lot of racism anxiety at play here? I mean, it's sort of a an implicit admission among this particular group that yeah, college degrees don't really matter anymore. Everybody has one. You just got to go to the right institution, and those institutions aren't meritocratic. Right. We all know that it's not about academic achievement. It's all about who you know and how much money you have and how you get into these institutions that give you the ladder up in society. So we should eliminate the meritocracy aspect of ah. it because it's not real to begin with. Ah, but see, that's where that's the rub. And that's where it gets interesting, because, of course, there is a lot of truth to that. I mean, think here is the truth to that. And this is why this is so such a fiendishly complicated problem. I love to I've talked about this three or four times before Abe three or four years ago, uh, I said, Dave, you gotta do a piece for us on the attack on meritocracy. Like we gotta, we gotta defend the meritocracy. This is terrible. Everyone's saying the meritocracy is terrible. And Abe said, great. Well, I've read 20 books, came back and he said, I, I will not defend the meritocracy. I'm not gonna do it. So I said, why not? He's like, cause the meritocracy is bad. You know what the meritocracy exists to do? It exists to make liberals. That's what it exists to do. We want to mm -hmm. get people through a system. They get to the high school, then they get to college, and they are trained in the same thoughts of mind and the same patterns of mind. And then they go into the same institutions and they preach cultural liberalism that I think is destroying the country. I'm not going to defend meritocracy. So instead, he wrote a piece called The War Against Asian Americans. 37 to 43 percent of the of the those kids admitted to Harvard freshman classes every year are legacies. We are, I'm talking about close to half of every class at Harvard is legacy. That is not meritocracy, that is aristocracy. There is no question that this country is dealing with. When, when by the way, if that were true in 1904, fine. 4% uh, of the population of the United States attended institutions of higher education at the turn of the 20th century. Four percent. We now have these preposterous numbers where close to 70% of Americans do some time in a higher education institution, although only 30% of them actually get a degree. We have created an entire system of privileging of this aristocracy by forcing everyone into some track in which they are always at the top of the food chain. Meritocracy, like colorblindness, should be an ideal, not an actual, but it's sort of become an actual. And somehow it is true that if you take New York City as my, as my favorite example, since I live here, they're trying to take away these eight institutions, these eight specialized high schools for which there is a special test at the state level. In 1971, when that test was first instituted, 
the overwhelming number of people who were admitted to those schools as a result of test scores were Jewish. In, from, in the last 15 years, the overwhelming majority of the kids who are, who are, who are admitted to those institutions are Asian, right? They were Jews, now they're Asian. So what has to happen? Non-Jewish whites and non-Asians, whatever you want to call it, get let's get rid of the, the test. I don't need it. My kids aren't using it. The only people who really need it or really hunger for it or really need it in this wildly disproportionate way are Asians who make up among the poorest populations in the city. This is the meritocracy actively looking to shackle, shackle the ability of people to enter the meritocracy. Well, and the, the other irony with it is that, that that's uh, going on among, while that's going on among the elite, what you see, what we do have to speak to colorblindness, we have plenty of evidence now from uh, social science research that shows that there is a colorblind standard for a success and achievement in this country, regardless of whether you go to college. Mm. Finish high school, get a job, get married before you have kids. Those three things, do those three things no matter what color your skin is, no matter where you come from, where you were born, and you are already ahead of the curve. The interesting thing to me is that to say that now to certain minority populations is considered a racist act, racist act, you can't say that. And that, but the people who are telling us that that's, a, that's some sort of, you know, uh, hangover effect of structural racism themselves live by just those values. Amen. So it, this is the weird sort of point we're in with the elite telling uh, the non-elite how to behave, how to live their lives. But if the standard for membership in, is, in elitism, and Abe was very right, the meritocracy that you laud creates new tribes and new semiotics. It creates new understanding. How do I signal my membership in the elite? I have, I have entered the elite. How do I signal my membership therein? And the currency right now is wokeosity. How that you have to, that no one at the table can be woker than thou, right? No one at the, you have, uh, and we think about also how cultural pressures, and this is to Noah's point about how quickly these things happen. When everything is being observed, and this is for people who, God bless you, who still go on Twitter and stuff like that. If you live in a world where what you're doing is being observed and you might be reported at any moment, at any moment, you might be canceled and reported. The thing that you have to do is never be the last one. I, did you guys used to do the thing where you put your thumb on the table? to see who is going to do something, who is going to deal cards, who had to drive, whatever. And if you you look around and you see that you're the last one to put your thumb on the table, you're going to have to go on the beer run. Nobody wants to be the last one to put their thumb on the table <laughs> on all this woke stuff. So as soon as you start the bidding, if you want to demonstrate that you're an elite, then you want to demonstrate that you're ed educated. And part of this, you've got to be woker than the next guy. And this creates this incredibly stupid space that will ultimately defeat itself. It will ultimately bring itself down. Can I bring, I, I just want to conclude on this point, again, using my father as an example, because I know many people who listen to the podcast know who my father is and know about his life story, but I'm going to, so you would think he's one of the most august intellectuals of the 20th century, you know, a, a writer, a, a famous man, a famous controversialist and all this. As I was growing up in New York City in the 1970s and even into the 1980s when I was already a young adult, and it was the weekend and we would go out to 
go to a movie or we would, you know, we'd leave and walk to a movie theater, go to a movie, go somewhere. And my father would put on a jacket and a tie. And I would say to him, why are you wearing a tie? And he never really, he's like, because somebody might, might see me. Uh, I didn't really understand what he meant by that. Flash forward sort of 10, 15 years, it's summer. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm, I'm in New York. I was living in Washington. I'm in New York for the weekend. I'm staying with my parents. I'm going to go out for a date. So I put on a blue blazer and brown shoes. And I'm 25, 26 years old. My father says to me, you're, you're wearing brown shoes. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'm wearing brown shoes. Like I'm wearing a blazer, I wear brown shoes. And he said, I never had the social self-confidence to wear brown shoes. <laughs> why, am I, why am I telling you this story? Because my father grew up the son of a milkman. He went to public, he, he went to Columbia on scholarship. He went to Cambridge on scholarship. He rose entirely through the power of his own mind. He made everything for himself. He was part of the great American meritocracy, but there were rules. And the rules were in his head, if you're walking down the street and it's a set Sunday and you're not wearing a jacket and a tie, they're sending you back to Ocean Hill Brownsville to the tenement you grew up in. And if you don't wear the right shoes, they are gonna mock you and tease you and make you feel terrible and make you call into question every decision that you ever made. Those were superficial rules. And by the way, and that doesn't even go to accents, right? Which are another very important tell. He happened to have lost his accent as he tells the story in, in, in his book, My Love Affair with America, simply because a teacher in first grade heard him speaking with a Yiddish accent and put him in an English immersion class for three weeks and he lost his accent and his sister who was six years older had a thick Brooklyn accent for the rest of her life. So that was just a happenstance thing, but accents, clothing, all of that, that was the badge of meritocracy. That was what you had to do. Imagine a world we have now transferred into a world in which as Chris says, the badge of being in the meritocracy is what you think, is the opinions that you hold about certain things and that if you don't have them, you are going to be sent back to Ocean Hill Brownsville into that tenement or whatever that is in 2021, whatever version that is. You are going, you are cast out. You are no longer part of the class that you spent, you worked your life to get into and to be a part of. And that is not sustainable. People are not going to be able to live under these conditions as Americans, is my view and we are gonna see an explosion outward. I don't quite know how it's gonna work. The only analogy I can think of, I know we're running very long, but Chris, I was hoping maybe you can respond to this. Uh, we're talking about how all this happened without anybody really voting on it, right? I mean, this sort of all corporately and school boardly and all this, it just sort of happened and nobody was given the right to be the check on it. So this is an inexact analogy, but when the Supreme Court decided to say that abortion was an unlimited right in 1972, 
abortion, which was an issue that was working its way through the legislatures and this and that and the other thing. All of American politics was reformed at that moment. The single most important political event of our lifetimes, or my lifetimes, and some of you are younger than this, was Roe v. Wade, because it created the modern conservative movement, it created the politics of the modern feminist movement, it created counterpolitics, it created the, the move, the Republican move on the courts, the liberal counter assault, all of this. And it all happened because what happened here was not put up for a vote. What happened on abortion was not, it was deemed by fiat. All, this is not a, a controversial opinion. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said that it would have been better had abortion been legalized by legislatures instead of by the courts. And I wonder if there is any possible analogy, Chris, whether you think there is any comp comparable thing going on here, even though we're talking about social norms, which are much broader and not, it's not just simply a legal matter. Um, I think uh, certainly you, and you saw the Supreme Court in the uh, Obergfell case where they were just trying to get on the bus as it was leaving. National public opinion had already shifted on gay marriage so substantially and it was a, a, a remarkable shift. In that case, the Supreme Court was just getting on board as it was leaving. If the Supreme Court wouldn't have acted another five years, gay marriage would have been legal in some form in every state in the union anyway, probably. So anyway, yes. But I think in this case, this is more about cultural mores. It's more about... Um, the, these are cultural, not legal questions. These are... There's not going to be a decision from any court or any legislature that's going to work this stuff out. What is going to happen is that this new McCarthyism will reach a terminal point, just like every witch hunting does, right? At every point, you get to a thing, and I don't know how where it was on Me Too. I can't remember which case it was in the... Uh, moral panic around Me Too, the, the, the rightly placed moral panic around uh, Me Too, but they they got to a case, and I forget who it was, where it was like, no, Aziz it's too Ansari. much. Yeah, Aziz Ansari. No, actually, it's too much, and we're hurting probably okay people. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, public masturbators are not really our friends, but should we destroy their lives for public masturbation? I don't know. Uh, so you reach that tipping point. I think we're rapidly approaching a point where culturally people are just fed up with the cancel culture and the wokeness. And it takes time for, see, because at first you hear outraged individuals talking, you hear Glenn Beck and you go, Oh goodness, please calm down. Holy crocodile. What get a step away from the chalkboard. And it's cultural Marxism and don't you understand and all that stuff. And normal people try to ignore this stuff as much as possible. But then you reach a point where it permeates to such a point that the governing third of the country, the persuadable third of the country says, this is too much. And it starts to look ridiculous and it starts to be preposterous. That happened with sexual libertinism, that it, with everything that is a counter reaction, it outruns its supply lines eventually and snaps back. And I think that's what will happen here. From your mouth to God's ear, and ah. thank you so much, 
for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation, I think. That's my view, but you may feel different. Well, I love I love you guys, and I marvel at the fact that you're able to produce so much good conversation so often. Uh, it is, uh, it is, if I may say, a mitzvah. Well, I, all I can say is that uh, this is the, uh, I would say this is the finest gathering of talent since Chris Starwell died alone. So oh. with that, with that, <laughs> for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning.